Uh, we uh, are starting a new sermon series this morning that I'm calling the short letters of the New Testament. Um, and today we're going to be in the book of Titus <clears throat> uh, in the first chapter there. Many of us are familiar with the, uh, the larger, more prominent books of the New Testament and what they're about, you know, like the Gospels. Most people know the Gospels are about Jesus. Uh, the book of Acts, many of you know that that's a, a early church history uh, from the beginning of the church uh, through the first few years. The book of Revelation is... Uh, is a is about the end times and judgment uh books like letters like uh or books like first and second corinthians many of you know that those are letters written by the apostle paul to a church uh that was located in the city of corinth that's why we call it corinthians uh and it has a variety of those two letters have a variety of topics uh and they're pretty long um but can anyone here quote a scripture from the books of second or third John. Raise your hand if you can quote a passage from second or third John. Okay. Um, uh, anyone uh, familiar with the theme of the book of Jude? Uh, some of you might know that, but anybody? Okay. Uh, and you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, where were the churches that Titus served uh, in the book of Titus? And who was Philemon? And what was the little book with his name on it about? Some of you might remember that. Uh, but I, I bet a lot of us don't know uh, much about those little books. So well, for the next several weeks, we're, we're going to set the big, long letters of the New Testament aside, and we're going to focus on the little, short letters. Uh, God preserved them, uh, and they are included in the New Testament for a reason. Uh, so let's take some time to consider what those little books can teach us. So the short letters of the New Testament, Titus, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude. So let's start with Titus. We'll go in order as they appear in the New Testament. My Logos Bible program describes Titus this way. Titus, a friend and helper of, of Paul, was left in Crete, a notoriously difficult place to nurture a church. Paul's letter to Titus gave him practical advice on how to organize and lead a new church. Uh, so the author, the author, the apostle Paul, uh, wrote this letter to Titus, a young evangelist that he had worked with to start churches on the island of Crete. Now, Crete, uh, if you look at a map, uh, Crete is a Greek island that's located in the Mediterranean Sea just below the Aegean Sea. It's kind of halfway between Greece and the western coast of, of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Many scholars uh, feel, feel that likely Paul and Titus worked together to evangelize on Crete after Paul's first imprisonment. And then at some point, Paul left Crete uh, to work elsewhere, leaving Titus to carry on the work there on the island. Uh, and as the statement said, this letter was meant to give Titus advice uh, on how to carry on his work as an evangelist there in Crete. So let's read the opening verses verse 1 through 4. Um, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at the appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. The first the first three verses are one long sentence. 
Uh, that's the way they did it in Greek. Uh, and uh, so it's like, where, where's it going to break? Oh, finally it's in. Okay. Uh, and then verse 4, that was from Paul to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, our Savior. Now, Paul identifies himself to Titus, uh, but even more, uh, he's identifying himself, because Titus already knew who he was, uh, even more to anyone else who might read this letter. Uh, th this was not just a personal letter just for Titus, uh, but it was meant for the whole church on Crete and beyond. Hey, we're studying it today uh, in Wilson, North Carolina. Um, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, who, uh, one who shares the truth of salvation commissioned by God to do so. He's established who he is for anybody who reads it. To Titus, whom Paul calls his true son in the faith. One of the interesting characteristics of this letter by Paul written to Titus is how similar it is in many ways to the two letters that were written to Timothy. Um, uh, Paul begins his first letter to Timothy by referring to him as his true son and uh, his dear son in the first letter, his true son and his dear son in his second letter. And of course, this would make sense uh, as he called Titus his son as well, uh, because both Timothy and Titus were young um, evangelists that the apostle Paul had worked with in planting new churches. And so he, was, he very much felt like a son or a spiritual son uh, to him. Uh, for Timothy, it, uh, it, it was uh, addressed to Timothy where he worked in the city of Ephesus, which is on uh, was Asia Minor today, a modern-day western Turkey. Uh, for Titus, it was the island of Crete. Now, after opening comments, Paul gets down to business right away by giving Titus advice and direction on the monumental task of appointing elders to lead and to shepherd the, the churches that were found there, that were established and planted there on Crete. Paul covered this same topic uh, in his letter of, of appointing elders to Timothy when he wrote to Timothy. We read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. With the difference being that Timothy's instructions for elders seems to have been more of maintaining a healthy eldership that had already existed uh, and Titus uh, was more for uh, appointing elders for the very first time because there, there weren't any elders there yet. Um, verse 5, Paul writes, The reason I left you in Crete was, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Apparently there were uh, multiple churches in different towns on the island. Elders, elders, elders are extremely uh, an extremely important part of any congregation. Uh, like any organization, a local church or a local congregation needs leadership. Now, without leadership, there's chaos. Um, and without good leadership, uh, the result can be corruption, neglect, abuse, ineffectiveness, misguidance. So there are several different kinds of leadership models that, that exist. An organization can be led by one person, like a CEO or a king or a president or a dictator. This model can work in some cases, but only, only if the person is both wise and good. And when I say good, I mean he's a good person. 
Uh, if, if he or she is not wise, the mission of the organization will not be met. If the leader is not good, if he's not a good person, then the people will suffer at the hands of the leader's corruption, cruelty, or greed. The problem with one just having just one leader is the real possibility of getting an unwise and or bad person to be the leader. Um, you know, we can think of many evil kings and evil dictators uh, throughout the ages that caused great pain and great destruction to both their country and to the people of their country. Yet, even a leader who is wise and good is not perfect because no human being is perfect. Everything depends on one person's actions and decisions. It all uh, is on that person's shoulders. And with no advice or guidance, uh, that person can still make a mistake. That could be harmful, even though they're good and wise. So because of the weakness of having just one leader, God decided that the leaders of his local church would not be one leader, but a plurality of leaders, two or more. Two or more leaders who are both wise and good. These leaders would be called elders, sometimes overseers, or shepherds, um, or pastors might be used. I hear music playing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can you, Joe, can you help them turn that music off? little accompaniment to my sermon here. I've always thought, I thought, I've always thought that might be a nice effect. It's not a little background music. Hey, guys, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um. So because of the weakness of having only one leader, uh, God decided to have a plurality of leaders, two or more leaders. Again, elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors are the different names interchanged uh, to be used uh, for that position. Now, if they are to be wise and good, which is if, if they're going to be effective, they've got to be both wise and good. These leaders cannot just be selected by popular election. All right, let's. Let's just have nominations, and we'll throw some names in the hat, and we'll have an election. Uh, leaders who are selected because of their wealth, or because of their personality, or because of their influence uh, in the community or among the people. No, God calls his church to choose leadership, elders who are rich in the wisdom of God, wise in the wisdom of God, and who themselves are living a Christ-like life. Now, when, when you have two or more leaders in a congregation who are spiritually wise and live godly lives, even though they're not perfect, and, and no elder is, collectively, by helping each other, uh, they are more likely to reach the highest potential of effective, godly leadership. You, you know, the old checks and balances uh, that you have with more than one. Uh, that catch more flaws or strengths and weaknesses that can be balanced to cover more areas. 
Now, the, the eldership model of leadership is in no way perfect because human beings serve in those positions, and there is no human being that's perfect. But God saw the wisdom of how a plurality of wise and good leaders would be the best model for his church and his local congregation. Now, as Paul planted churches, he and others appointed elders in each con congregation. Now here in Crete, Paul had to leave for some reason before that important task was completed. So in his letter, he gives guidance on what kind of person Titus should appoint as an elder. So let's read the qualifications that Paul gives Titus. They're in verses 6 through 9. As an elder, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right, as, as with Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, in his letter to Titus, he lists the qualities that a candidate for elder should meet. Now, the list of Timothy and Titus are not exactly the same. They're not word for word, you know, like a like the qualifications for a store manager position at Walmart might be. You know, it's going to be the same here as it is over there, word for word. Uh, so they're not word for word exactly the same, but they're, they're, they're very similar, and they cover the basic spiritual and practical requirements for someone who is going to join fellow elders to lead the local church. So let's take a look at these qualifications. As we do so, let's consider the important topic of elder qualifications. Now, we might be tempted to just skip this section uh, uh, altogether, and we might think, well, why do I need to know the qualifications of an elder? I'm not an elder, and I don't ever plan to be an elder. Uh, you know, I'm never going to be involved in choosing an elder, so maybe this passage is important to some people, but it doesn't seem to be very important to me, so why don't we just skip it? Okay, may maybe you never will be an elder. Uh, most Christians won't be. Uh, maybe you'll never be an elder. But as a member of, of this congregation at Stony Brook, you do have a say in the choosing. Um, our elders here, our, uh, our elder candidates, are vetted by our existing elders. And then you are given the opportunity to voice your thoughts uh, 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 and your knowledge about those candidates that the, the existing elders present. Now, maybe you agree wholeheartedly with the choices uh, that the existing elders made and you're in total agreement, but maybe you know something uh, about, uh, about the candidate that they missed, that they didn't know about. Uh, maybe you know something that would disqualify them that the existing elders were unaware of. The elders need to know if that's true, and so you could come to them privately and, and say, well, let me, let me just tell you what I know. Uh, how, can, how can you then know if a person is qualified if you don't know the qualifications? 
Secondly, basically the qualifications of an elder are nothing more than the high standard that every Christian should seek in their life. You know, every Christian should be hospitable, right? Every Christian should love what is good. Every Christian should be self-controlled, right? Every Christian parent should seek to teach their children not to be wild and disobedient, right? Um, in, in fact, there's nothing listed here among these qualifications that every Christian shouldn't strive for. Um, no one can look at this list and say, well, at least I don't have to worry about that one because I'm not, I'm not going to be an elder. I, I don't have to even be concerned about that at all. There's none of them we can say that to. So as we go through the list, don't think of it as just a list of qualification for elder, but think of it as a list of qualities that we all should strive for as a follower of Jesus. So let's look at the first one. The first one is that the elder should be blameless. The elder should be blameless. First Timothy uses a, a similar term, above reproach. Now, you might say that, that this is a, a primary qualification by which all, all the others are under, sort of the heading uh, of all the qualifications. So, blameless, and, then, and then here are, des are descriptions of what blameless means. Uh, blameless doesn't mean perfect, thankfully, <laughs> because uh, obviously no one would be qualified to be an elder if that were the case. Uh, but overall, a candidate for elders should be someone that no one could make a case for living a sinful life or having sinful habits or behaviors, but rather could easily make a case for someone who is godly and walks in step with the Holy Spirit. Uh, shouldn't all of us be striving to do that? Shouldn't all of us be striving to be blameless? Is there anyone here that can say, well, I don't need to be blameless because I'm not going to be an elder? Uh, wouldn't it be right for any Christian to think, uh, uh, would, it, would it be right for any Christian to think, well, yes, my lifestyle is sinful, uh, but it, I'm not an elder, so it's okay. That's okay. No, no, God desires that every follower of Jesus strive to be blameless. The, sec the next uh, uh, qualification is that he's faithful to his wife. Now, there's a couple of things with this one that we want to make note of. First, this is the first indication in this letter that an elder is a man. The elder is a man. Paul doesn't give the option of or faithful to her husband. Um, Paul also is not afraid to use specific pronouns. He's okay with pronouns. <laughs> uh, here in his letter to Timothy, Paul refers to elder, the elders as he. He. In fact, throughout the New Testament, elders are consistently men appointed from a local congregation to serve in this way. Now, now many in our modern culture today uh, struggle with this distinction. You know, they call it male chauvinism or discrimination or misogynistic, which means the hatred or dislike of women. The New Testament is very clear in its description of human value. Uh, there is no distinction of human value. All humans are equally loved by God, uh, equally valued by God. Jesus died for all human beings, no matter who they are, where they come from, no matter what their race is, no, no matter their status or economic situation, no matter whether, whether they're male or female, 
We are all of the same exact value to God. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For all of you were baptized into Christ, who, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. I love that image. When, you, when you're baptized into Christ, you put on Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But while we are all equal in the sight of God and in, in our value, we do play different roles in life as male and female. For example, only a man can be a father, no matter what anybody says. Only a man can be a father. Only a woman can be a mother. You know, those are two distinct roles played by men and women. Both of them equally value uh, in raising a child. You know, and, and to say that it is misogynistic to say that only men can be fathers would be untrue. Only men can be fathers. Only women can be mothers. When God designed the church, he decided that men would fill the role of elders. Now, we could probably assemble a, a discussion one day and, and talk about and speculate why God did that, and there, there, there may be some reasons, probably can find some reasons in Scripture why. Uh, but the bottom line is, the new, in the New Testament, the elders who were appointed were always men. Now, this doesn't make women less valuable or less important. Not at all, not in any way. You know, women play many key roles in life and in the church, uh, in, in, in making the church work. Uh, and in the church, no role, no matter what it is, no role is more important than another or more valuable than another. They're all of equal value. We are all the body of Christ. All of us together make up the church the with the different parts and different roles that we play. Uh, and each part is vital to making the church work. I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as Paul talks about how the church works together and how it's different but, but, but one. You know, our practice here at Stony Brook uh, is choosing men to fill the role uh, of elder. And it's not based on some old-fashioned chauvinistic system. You know, it, it's, it's strictly on the example given in the New Testament. Now, Paul tells uh, Titus that any man who is appointed to serve as elder must, as we said earlier, be that he's faithful to his wife, that he's faithful to his wife. The common practice of the Greco-Roman world of the first century was that it was okay for a man to have a mistress. Everybody did it. Everybody accepted it. No big deal. No big deal. It's just what you did. It's just what you did. This practice was widely accepted among people outside of the church. But Paul wants it understood that this practice is not acceptable among followers of Jesus. Um, Paul wants it understood that, that uh, an elder, uh, if he's going to be a follower of Jesus, must be faithful to his one wife. Um, uh, it is unacceptable. Any other thing is unacceptable to any follower of Jesus. Um, no Christian should ever think, well, yeah, it's true that I'm fooling around with another person uh, these days, uh, but... I'm not a candidate for elder, so uh, it's okay, because that's just for elders. No, an elder must be a one-woman man, 
But elder or not, elder or not, the follower of Jesus dedicates himself or herself exclusively to, exclusively to their spouse that they committed themselves to. Till death do you part. That's the Jesus-following way, no matter who you are. Next, the elder is a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. You know, the point here is that if a man, we might want to think, well, you know, that's, that's none of their business how we raise our children. Um, the point here is if a man is going to be given the responsibility to lead a body of believers, a local congregation, you know, one way to gauge how equipped they are to do that is to observe how they lead their family. A family is sort of a micro example of the church. Um, uh, are his children under his care behaved, respectful, obedient, or are they wild, out of control, and disobedient? You know, and, and whatever the, the state of their family is, you can know that the father played a role in making it what it is, uh, either from engagement or or disengagement, or neglect. Now, we understand kids aren't perfect. Um, kids are kids, and they're going to do kid things. Uh, some kids are more compliant, some are less compliant. Um, even when you're engaged, you know, that's true. That's true. But there's a distinct difference between kids whose parents teach them to, res to respect and to be disciplined and to honor authority and and kids that don't, parents that don't teach that. There's a distinct difference between those that are very engaged with their kids and those that aren't. You want to know how an elder will lead a church? Observe how he leads his family. But of course, other parents who aren't uh, elder candidates don't need to worry uh, about whether their kids are respectful and develop uh, a Christ-like character. Now, now only elder uh, kids have to have to be uh, have to be obedient and respectful. Only elder candidates need to worry about that, right? Right? Well, of course not. Of course, that's not true. One of our primary roles in life, if we have been blessed with children, um, uh, one of our primary roles is to to be able to raise our children to love the Lord, to respect uh, other people, to respect authority. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons that our country is in such a mess today, is in such chaos today, is in big part because parents have failed to teach their children to live respectfully. And, and the reason uh, to, to live godly lives. Um, and, and I think mostly it's because the parents aren't living respectful and godly lives. And sometimes the grandparents. It's, it's generational these days. Listen, godly parenting is the key to a civil society and american parents many of them are failing at this miserably today now you can't make other parents uh act a certain way or, or do the right thing but you know what you and i can choose to be godly parents and godly grandparents who teach our children to love god and to love others and everything that goes along with that uh, verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. 
Paul lists several important characteristics that a leader of Christ church needs to possess. And also he gives some vices that a candidate for elder needs to avoid or not indulge in. So let's look at the vices first. The first one is he must not be overbearing or quick-tempered. You know, anyone who is managing God's household, to use the family term, since, again, a family is, the church is sort of an example of a family and vice versa. Um, Anyone who is managing God's household must not be someone whose stubbornness, self-will, and hot-headedness tries to force his will on others through intimidation and fear. Um, Rather, he should always be patient and loving as he deals with his brothers and sisters, as he's shepherding them, not driving them, but shepherding them. You know, uh, again, uh, observe how he leads his children. Uh, Is he constantly yelling at them? Is he constantly criticizing them, driving them, rarely encouraging them? Uh, If so, that's likely how he'll lead the church. Um, But of course, it's okay for those of us who are not elder candidates to be impatient and quick-tempered with people in our lives, right? It's okay for us if you're not an elder candidate. Well, of course not. Now you know the routine, right? Of course not. Of course not. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, and this is any father, not elder candidate fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. You know, that's any father or mother, not just elder candidates. Uh, The elder candidate is not given to drunkenness and violence or violence. You know, most everyone in the first century drank wine. Uh, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. It wasn't Welch's grape juice. It was wine. But it was also very common in the, in, in the first century for people to overindulge with wine, to abuse it. Uh, drunkenness in the Greco-Roman world was very common among people outside of the church. Drunkenness was, was not to be a vice among Christians for obvious reasons. And one of the, those is violence. You know, uh, one thing that, that too much alcohol can do is make you act like a fool including becoming violent. Uh, Abuse in marriages is often enhanced by alcohol abuse. Now, is the elder candidate uh, often drunk? Um, uh, Is he known for abusing his wife or for starting fights at family reunions? Uh, If so, then he is disqualified. Uh, But, of course, it's okay for the rest of us to get drunk, right? Uh, and to throw lamps uh, because dinner's not ready on time. Uh, no, drunkenness is sinful for anyone, anyone who's a follower of Jesus. Uh, uh, elder candidates or not, it's sinful because it makes us act like fools. Uh, and sometimes it can cause us to hurt people we love. Not pursuing dishonest gain. An elder should not pursue dishonest gain. Of course, an elder should not be someone who has no problem skimming off a few dollars from the till, you know, the line is pocket and put gas in his car. Um, you know, no, the elder will be in charge of dispersing the offerings that the folks give. Um, of course, he needs to be someone who can be trusted to always choose to be honest and put the interest of, the, of Christ's church ahead of his own interest. And that would include how he deals with the money 
Um, now, should we all avoid dishonest gain? Well, of course we should. Of course we should. So, don't cheat on your taxes. Uh, go back and pay for that item that the clerk forgot to ring up. Uh, give a day's work for a day's pay. Give a portion of your income back to God. It, it's what any follower of Jesus would do and should do. Verse 8, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now here switches, uh, Paul switches from vices to avoid to virtues that the elder should practice. So the first one is hospitable. Uh, hospitality is uh, a willingness to open up our lives, uh, to, to open up our hearts to others. Uh, an elder's work goes beyond this building, but carries wherever he happens to be uh, in the community. Uh, and so he, he's, he's ready to open up his house, his, his heart, his life to anyone who might need him. Um, he's hospitable. He loves what is good, uh, as opposed to loving what is evil. He has noble, a noble character. He's self-controlled. Now, can the candidate say no to the vices we just talked about? Um, can he say no to greed, to drunkenness, to violence, uh, to being overbearing and quick-tempered? Can he say no to all those things? Or is he constantly having to apologize for his bad choices? Uh, I'm so sorry I lost my temper again. I, I, I'm so sorry I spent the rent money for lottery tickets again. Is he self-controlled? Is he upright, holy, and disciplined? You know, when people think of this candidate and his character, do they think godly or worldly? Is he known for his love for God and others? Uh, or is he known for his love for self and material things? You know, the elder must have a reputation of being one who follows God in all that he does. Now, could we say that any of those virtues apply only to the elder? Uh, uh, hospi hospitable, loves what is good, self-control, upright, holy, disciplined. Does, does any of those apply only to elders? Yeah. Well, they, of course, are, are virtues that God wants all of us to develop in our lives through the help of the Holy Spirit uh, that lives in us. They identify us as a follower of Jesus. And let's look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You know, an elder must know and understand the truth of Scripture. You know, they must be a constant student in the, in the Word of God because it is the elder's responsibility to ensure that the church under his care is being taught and is following the truth, is following sound doctrine. You know, the elders are the guardian of the truth. Uh, it's their responsibility to guard it and to maintain it. Uh, it's their job to make sure that the flock, the church, uh, uh, that the shepherd leads doesn't stray from the teachings of God's word, uh, from the teachings of the apostles. You know, in, in a real sense, the, the 12 apostles, you know, they were the ones, the initial authority of God's word, 
uh, in a real sense, though, the 12 apostles passed on their leadership to the elders of each local congregation. So if that's their responsibility, then the elder must be someone who knows and understands God's word and continues to learn and grow in it. You know, the reason they are called elders is not because they're, they're old chronologically. Sometimes they are, but that's not the reason they're called elders. It, but it's because they are wise and mature in their faith. <laughs> they're, they're old men of the faith, you might say, no matter what their chronological age is, age is. That way they can be equipped to encourage in sound doctrine, as Paul writes, and refute those who oppose sound doctrine. You know, the church cannot be a body of believers that does whatever. Whatever you want to believe, that's fine with us. Just bring it all in. We'll all sort of try to work it in and mesh it into everything. Uh, no, that, that can't be the way the church works. It, it must be a body that believes and practices God's eternal truth, found in, only in, God's word. It's the elder's job to make sure that happens, to lift up the truth, to eliminate things that aren't true. But it's also important that all of us know the truth, isn't it? You know, one of our primary jobs as Christians is to share the gospel with people in our lives. And in order to do that properly, we must know the truth. You know, if, if you were given the opportunity today, and maybe you will, I hope you will, I hope I will, if we were given the opportunity today to, uh, to accurately share with someone the plan of salvation, you know, exactly how does one become a Christian? If somebody came up to you today and said, you know, I've been wondering about this, and could you tell me how to become a Christian? Could you do it? Could you point to the Bible, to, to verses in Scripture that would, that would, rather than just your opinion or what you say, you could show them in Scripture uh, how to be saved? Could, could you or I do that? You know, that's not an ability just for elders or preachers. No, every Christian should be able to accurately share the gospel. And the only way that you and I can do that is if we become lifelong students of God's word. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And, and, and how can you give an answer? You've got to know the scripture. Um, this is the reason I'm a Christian, because of what it says right here in God's word. You know, that's not just for elders. It's for all of us who follow Jesus. You know, that was Paul's instruction to Titus as he set out to appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete. It's also instructions that we use and we must use uh, in, in this church or any church as we seek to appoint candidates or look for candidates for elder. But, but as we've shown, these qualities are not exclusive to an elder candidate. They are simply an image of what any follower of Jesus should be. Whether elder or youth worker or musician or someone who's just for now attending worship on Sunday. You know, this is a picture of what you and I should look like as a follower of Jesus. So here's, here's our take home for today. Here's, here's our assignment for this week. I, I encourage all of us to, to review this passage and maybe go back to uh, 
1 Timothy chapter 3 and, and, and read through that one as well. Write down where you need work because we probably all have an area where we need some work. Um, you know, a vice that we just need to avoid or a virtue that we need to, to start or develop or strengthen in our lives. Uh, take, the, take down these, this passage and write all of them down and say, all right, how am I doing on this one? How am I doing on this one? Wow, this is one I really need to work on. And then ask God to help you make that area stronger in your life. So what's our goal? Let's let our goal be this prayer. God, while I may never be an elder, Lord, let me live as if I were. Because that's the kind of follower you want me to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, that, uh, this little letter that you wrote to Titus so long ago on the island of Crete. Uh, Lord, uh, it's been passed down for 2,000 years, and uh, uh, we still review it today. We still study it today. We still consider when it comes to appointing an elder. Here's where we go to your letter to Timothy and to your letter to Titus to help us and guide us as we choose candidates for elders. But help us to, to never look at this, Lord, as just something they must do or they must be but help us to see that this is just an image of what a follower of Jesus should be. So help us all this week to kind of take inventory of where we are and what kind of work we need to put in to be uh, more like you want us to be. We thank you, Father, for this lesson, for this learning, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.